At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. This one is rather unusual. I mean, typically I talk to old people, been around for a long time, I get them to reminisce and share stories and often of successes and often of... uh, things that you know about. But today I have a much younger guest, Meg Spriggs. And Meg has come on because she has a very interesting story to tell. It's a fascinating tale of uh, the two sides of academia. I won't say much more because uh, it will come more fluently from her her voice than mine. But just to say that uh, I met her last time I was in New Zealand, in Auckland. Um, It must have been five years ago. She's back there now sitting with a wonderful backdrop, which you can't see, of semi-tropical plants and trees. And it's been an interesting five years, as you'll discover when Meg tells her tale. So, Meg, over to you. Great. Thank you, David. Yeah, it is quite green behind me right now. That's partly because it hasn't really stopped raining in Auckland for the entirety of summer. But it is beautiful and it is good to be home. So I guess... I can dive into the story that's brought me here today that that I wanted to share. Before I do that, just a a couple of reasons, I guess, why I think it's important to share this story. Firstly is about normalizing these discussions, normalizing discussions about mental health. And, you know, I'm not sharing because I think my story is necessarily totally unique. I think that there are a lot of people who are also managing their own mental health out there that might be listeners to this podcast and in academia or otherwise. So I want to hopefully inspire people to have the courage to talk about it. And I think part of that is a discussion around sort of feeling shame. I feel, you know, a little bit of shame about some of the stuff that's happened over the past couple of years. And it feels icky to say it and it feels icky to talk about it. But I want to be open about it because it helps me to address my own shame, but it also allows people other people to to talk about it. So sort of taking a a bit of a step back, as you say, David, I came to Imperial in 2018, so quite a while ago. My dream was to start the psilocybin for anorexia trial. And I, you know, when I was doing my PhD in Auckland, I was watching the research happening at Imperial in the depression studies. and, And I just really felt like doing a trial in anorexia was something that was really important and really needed to happen. And and I met yourself, David and and Robin, and I somehow managed to weasel my way into getting a job with you. Well, that wasn't difficult. Let's give credit where it's due. You know, you you did come with a, you know, boat with with an enormous enthusiasm and uh, a great knowledge and also a very good CV and also some skills, which we didn't have. So, you know, you were, you definitely didn't weasel your way in. You came in full frontal (laughs) I I worked hard and yeah and it was it really was a dream and it has been a dream being at Imperial for four years and starting the anorexia study I mean 
the fact that we got the study off the ground is incredible and the people working on the trial are absolutely incredible so i'm so grateful for that and we're grateful to you can i put that on record we're grateful to you for coming and getting it off the ground as well yes thank you so i guess what the audience can probably guess right now is that you know my my dream to start this trial didn't come out of thin air that I have a history of a very serious and life-threatening eating disorder of anorexia, and that I also have a history of a severe mood disorder of uh, depression. And I think that, you know, when I moved to the UK, you know, that a certain series of events were somewhat of a perfect storm that led to a bit of a decline for me. So obvious things being COVID and isolation, but also, you know, being far away from my family and feeling all sorts of pressures. And I guess being in isolation for such a long time made it easy for me to hide when I was struggling with both my mood and my eating disorder. For a long time, though, I think I was only really treating water. And in April last year, April 2022, it reached a point where I wasn't able to cope anymore. And yeah, this is the first time I've really talked about this. Well, before, can I just prelude that mm -hmm. by saying I, I think you had COVID at least three times whilst you were running the study in the middle of the most difficult <laughs> period of anyone ever trying to do any science. So, you know, I think people should know that, you know, you, it was, you were very, very unfortunate with both COVID messing up your research, but also seriously messing up your health. I did. I mean, I managed to get COVID in March 2020. I mean, talk about high achiever. I got it first before it was cool. And I was hit really hard at that point. And I think that for me was a big turning point because I did become unwell from COVID at that point, which triggered a depressive mo uh, period for me as well. But you know, I, I did, I was managing, but I was, you know, slowly declining for quite some time. And in April, I, I reached a point where I couldn't cope on my own anymore. I felt like I was on a moving train that I couldn't get off and I had to step away from work and I had to get some professional help. So I took quite a long period off work and this wasn't easy because work is such a huge part of my identity and it always has been. And I love my job. I loved working in mental health research um, and I'm so passionate about it. And I also felt like stepping away, I was letting a lot of people down. And as much as people tell me I didn't let anyone down, you know, you can't help those feelings. But I also want to take this moment to acknowledge the people who are really important in supporting me through this time. So David, yourself being one of them, and David Arezzo. I mean, I couldn't have asked for more understanding you know, mentors and supervisors. Hannah Douglas and Kate Godfrey and Jennifer Danby were all such, you know, huge supports during this time. And I am forever grateful to all of you and everyone at, at Imperial for supporting me to take the time that I needed to focus on myself. So 2022 was, was a, you know, a difficult year for me, but, you know, towards the end of the year, I was in a, much much better place um, and i really started to get myself back on track and this process has really helped me to determine what's really important in life i think and for me those things are family spending time with my husband who is the greatest human being on earth and my mother who's the other greatest human being on earth and all of my family and so i made the decision to or my husband and i made the decision to come back to new zealand although he's a brit new zealand is a second home for him and so we've been back in new zealand for about three and a half weeks now and it is so fabulous to be home 
Well, I can say you certainly look very well now. And I feel slightly embarrassed to, to say that, you know, it was we were slow to pick up how much you were suffering as, during the course of those those couple of years when when COVID and the stress of the of, of the work and the the complexities of trying to do work at a distance were really getting on top of you. So apologies for not being as uh, as observant as perhaps we should have been. And I think, you know, you're giving credit to the to the other team members for picking that up and helping you was was important. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I I guess it's you know these things are very it's easy to hide these things behind a camera when you're in isolation for a long time but also i know that in speaking about it now you know we can learn from this so that similar things don't happen and and i also think i i want to say that that you know that the role of work wasn't in the way that people might necessarily assume it wasn't that i was triggered by the trial i don't think i was triggered by the trial i think it was the pressure i think Part of it was the pressure, and as you say, you know, trying to get this trial running in when the world was all very uncertain. And what we know about people with eating disorders is that they don't tend to like uncertainty. And I don't, I definitely don't like uncertainty. So I think it was the sort of accumulation of these things that that led to my burnout. I think it, it would probably help the listeners if we gave them a bit of an idea of what you were trying to do and how difficult it was and how innovative it was. Do you want to? Do you want to share the structure of the trial with them? I mean, people people won't understand quite what you were trying to do, so because you haven't told them yet. So tell them about the study so that they appreciate the enormous challenge it was. So the study is is incredible. It's still ongoing, and as I say, the people who are running it are wonderful. So the study is a trial of psilocybin-assisted therapy for anorexia nervosa. So anorexia is a mental health disorder that has pretty limited treatments at the moment it has the highest mortality rate of any mental health disorder and it's you know typically diagnosed as a condition where people have a fear of food leading to low body weight and a fear of gaining weight and the trial is a similar uh, sort of taking a similar psychedelic therapy approach as with other um, trials that we've had at Imperial, so depression and the others. We It's a trial of 20 patients who come in for three sessions of psilocybin-assisted therapy with a therapy team, and there's a, a sort of a long-term follow-up session period for that as well. It's a really special trial, and I guess the work that I was doing between 2018 and when the trial started in 2021 was all of the background stuff. So, you know, writing the protocol, getting the approvals, getting the drug, which, uh, as you've talked about a lot before, David, is is, is not an easy process when you're working with a, a Schedule One drug. So it's, it's very time consuming. And I think COVID, COVID made things harder because everything had to be done remotely. But yeah, we obviously got there in the end and and really really great to see it going but it was an extremely complicated study wasn't it not only because it was certainly the first in the uk using a psychedelic and eating disorders and i think only the second in the world and currently probably the largest in the world but with also re- involving repeated doses and also recruiting people from all over the country i mean it, it was enormously challenging i mean tell us a bit about the ethics and how did that go did that were there any issues there? Did that did it get through the ethics okay? It did in the end. I think, to be honest, I think it's because of the work that you and Robin and David Aritzer had done before that we were able to get it through 
with, you know, there were a, a couple of delays, but it wasn't too much. I think one of the barriers that we didn't expect was informing clinicians about what they were, you know, if they referred a patient, what they were referring them to. So a lot of our time was actually spent working with different trusts and trying to um, basically just make sure that people were informed rather than misinformed about psilocybin and about psychedelic-assisted therapy so that we could recruit. In fact, you also, on the side, did quite a bit of work for the charity Drug Science, didn't you, on psychedelic therapy and helping them set up an ethics group, etc. So, you know, you were you were stretched in, in several directions as well, which probably didn't help, I suppose. Yeah, I did. I done a little bit with, quite a bit with drug science now. I did the helping Joe set up the Women in Psychedelics talk series. Oh, yes, that group too, yes. Yeah, yeah the 2020 New Zealand Cannabis Referendum panel event with yourself and, and Helen Clark and others. Yeah, and the ethics consortium that I worked on with added great people from drug science. So yeah, it's, it was a busy few years and, and I think, you know, I'm a perfectionist and I'm someone who will always be pushing myself. So I was involving myself in lots and lots of things. And I think that, again, that's not something that's unique to me. I think people in academia to be high achievers tend to be perfectionists. And there's kind of this culture about it too, this culture about you've got to be pushing yourself and um, you've got to be like striving all the time and no pain, no gain. and it can be really damaging if that's internalized. Yeah, certainly, you know, one of the, I think, the uh, the key messages you know, that have come out of your experience. So maybe you want to talk a little bit more about, you know, how you, how you felt about, you know, the need to succeed and, and the challenges of, of not succeeding and how that presumably got into a terrible tangle in your in your mind as you, you know, you've made, you know, you've come halfway across the world and with, you know, aspirations to go on in an academic career and then having to change tack. Can you, are there learnings from that for others? Absolutely. I mean, I think, as I say, you know, perfectionism and high achievement is high in people in academia. And, you know, I came across from New Zealand. I also, you know, I, I don't have very high health self-esteem. So a kind of perfectionism and low self-esteem kind of add together. And also there's there's an enmeshment with passion, I guess. So I think it, it's great to be passionate about what you work, about what you do for your work. I think it's really, really important to be passionate. And I love that everybody in this field is so passionate and academics generally are really passionate. But I think it can be problematic if it leads you to the point that you don't know who you are without it. And a lot of the work that I did through recovery was discovering who I was. So really early in my recovery, all I wanted to do was get back to work. That was all I wanted to do. And I had a psychiatrist say to me, I don't want you to go back to work. I want you to learn to just be. And I really did not like that at the time. I found that really hard to hear, but I'm so glad that that was the advice that I was given because it did give me that space to learn to just sit. I think this this is also common in people recovering from anorexia is that anorexia becomes part of your identity. And it's really scary to think about not having that. And just like for me, it was also scary to think about, well, what am I if I'm not a psychedelic researcher? And I've realized that there is a lot more to me than that. You know, I love being outside. I love doing craft. I love music. I love more than anything. I love spending time with my husband. And, you know, those are things that I neglected when I was too busy focusing on achievement. Yes. Do you think you had barriers to being encouraged to think differently? I mean, was, were there any clues before you had your breakdown? 
were there pointers or were there things you perhaps warning signs that you neglected or resisted or I mean, other things that people could look out for perhaps some of the other pointers for the people if they feel they're you know not sure if they're going on the same track so to speak yeah i mean i guess it i think when it got to the point that i wasn't able to you know take a weekend without feeling guilty you know i think that's something that shouldn't be the case and and i definitely realized as well in terms of my mentoring so you know i was mentoring students working underneath me and and when i was sending emails on the weekend and i was talking about oh yeah i spent all weekend you know coding this analysis ha 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 those kind of messages get internalized and i i'm sorry to those students that i might have you know that might have felt like they needed to then do that because i was doing it so i think that that having that work life balance is is really important and there's i think moving away from this idea that having no work life balance is like a badge of honor well, yes, I think that's it's a really important point you're making. And I just, I mean, do you feel that many people, you know, of your peers are in the same situation? They feel the same way? Yeah, I think in, in academia generally, I think I think there's a, there's, you know, the, the uncertainty, the uncertainty of, of academia in that, you know, you're on these, these short-term contracts, one year, two years, three years, for a, a very long time until you can get a permanent position. Because of that, you know, there's sense that you've got to kind of commit everything to it. And unfortunately, I have to say it, I think it's easier for men on average to to do that than it is for women. And this is on average. I think for women, it's really hard because you do get faced with those decisions of, you know, do I prioritize my work or do I prioritize wanting to have a family? And that's that's really challenging. And I think it's also hard for anybody who, for whatever reason, has felt unheard in life. So I think sometimes being successful in academia can sometimes be a matter of who having the loudest voice in the room and if you have a history of being unheard whatever that reason may be it's harder it's harder to to be the loudest so I think it also fuels an inequality and do you feel that your mentors and guides like including myself do you think we overlook things I mean are there were there pointers that we should have picked up or we were we insensitive or are there any guidance you could give to us as to uh, how we might do better in future if we could. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important to say that that there is no like I I'm not here speaking about any particular organisation or any particular individual. This is I think this is an academia wide problem. So, and I do think that I had incredibly good support. I think one thing to do is I mean I don't have the answers. I wish I had the answers. I don't. But one thing is is to start talking about it. Start talking about it and taking steps to create a more well-being oriented atmosphere practicing what we preach really well of course that's the embarrassing thing isn't it you know we're particularly you know we're you know i'm a psychiatrist you know you're a patient expert we're in a field where we should know more than any well we do know in theory more than anyone and yet it, it's still we still fail and and that's kind of rather chilling in a way isn't it that we actually allow other factors to dominate our, our thinking so that we're blind to what we should be seeing. Yeah. And I think there is an expectation in working in mental health that you're kind of, you must be okay. And I don't know if that's just me or if, if this other people feel that way, but kind of this expectation that, you know, you have to be, you have to be pretty psychologically solid to be able to tell other people how to be psychologically solid. But maybe what's more important is that we model, you know, model that, you know, that there can be bad times and maybe we need to use services. I mean, 
I'm on antidepressants and I've been on and off antidepressants since I was in my early 20s. And I experience a lot of shame about this. You know, I have done in the past. I felt like, you know, if, if, I, if I need to take medication, then, you know, I, I should be able to manage my brain chemistry well enough without it. And so the reasons that I've gone off antidepressants from time to time is because I felt I don't want to be on them, but that's never really ended well for me. So I'm on them again now. And I've come to terms with the fact that maybe I'm just one of those people that might need to take them for the rest of my life. And that's, that's okay. And actually I'm quite, I consider myself quite, you know, lucky that I'm one of the people that medication does work for because I know it doesn't work for a lot of people. And that's why we do what we do is to help people that it doesn't work for, but it's also okay to take them. Yes, I always think that this. I find this truly one of the the strangest things, isn't it, about about why people should be shamed or shame feeling shame about doing something that is kind of vital to their health. And do you think it's part of of the mental health issue in, in a sense? It, we don't still. No one will be ashamed of taking. Well, I'm not ashamed of taking my antihypertensives or my statins. So why would people be ashamed about taking antidepressants? So, have you reflected on that at all? Yeah, I think, well, there, there's definitely this idea, and to some extent it is true, that antidepressants are being prescribed left, right and centre. You know, there are times when I've been asked to go back on antidepressants and no one's checked in with me any kind of, you know, safety information before giving them to me. But I think what that's done is it's fueled the stigma against them because maybe some people are given them when they might, you know, benefit from talk therapy and maybe that could address things or whatever the reason. I think that fuels the stigma against them. But for some people, they are necessary. And I think I'm one of those people that it's just they are necessary. But it, it does mean that you feel like and also it I worry that it makes people think that I'm, you know, that I'm not able to cope or I'm I'm extra vulnerable or something like that. And I don't want that stigma against me. Yeah, no. So the message you'd give to other people who are uncertain about antidepressants, what would that message be? I mean, it's extreme. It's extremely common, I find, that people say they, you know, they don't want to be on antidepressants or they, they're frightened of antidepressants. Or, and I do see, you know, in, in psychiatry, you see people who resisted them for so long that their lives have been pretty much blighted. And you think, well, why would it be so much so much better if you, you know just try a, a long time ago because you know sometimes you know they're, they're transformative you know then as, as you probably know in New Zealand as well as in the UK there are lobby groups that are very anti antidepressants for reasons I, I struggle with I mean, what, what message would you give to someone perhaps not the lobbyists but to, to people of your age and your you know your your sort of background who are struggling with mental health problems what would you say about medication or the perspectives I mean, I think my perspective is that medication, I mean, in my experience, med medication can make the difference between me not being able to engage in therapy and me being able to engage in therapy. So sometimes it can just be that extra little leg up that you need. And as you said earlier, David, I think it's no different from taking, you know, medication for your blood pressure or medication for diabetes or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's a chemical balance. And yeah, it feels, 
I can I can understand why people might be. I mean, I was I, as I say, I've definitely been reluctant to do it in the past, but for me, it's made such a huge difference in my life, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, you can probably tell me how long ago I would have had to. It's not that long ago that I wouldn't have had this opportunity to have antidepressants, and how much harder my life would have been because of that. I mean, yeah, there are side effects, but their side effects are better than the alternative. So, I would say that they're they're not as scary as as kind of the world makes them out to be. Well, actually, that's a, yeah, that's a very good uh, and straightforward statement which we, we can share with other people, quite especially the modern ones, which are much safer, you know, than obviously you know, people take overdoses or whatever. But you emphasise the fact that they they facilitate therapy. So tell us a bit more about therapy and how it helped you, and what comments you'd make to others about about seeking that kind of help. Sure, absolutely. So. Before I came to the UK, I had been in continuous therapy for 10 years or so. And it's always been for me a place where I can go and talk and unload and feel like I'm not being judged. And, you know, the I've worked with some incredible therapists over time. I've also, you know, tried to see therapists that haven't worked for me. And it's been a matter of saying, actually, this relationship isn't going to work for me. I'm going to try someone else, which can be a really hard thing to say, but an important thing. When I came to the UK, I didn't seek out initially a therapist in the UK to see. And I think that for me was a, that was a mistake. I should have been seeing someone. I think that contributed to what happened. I, since I've, you know, gone back into treatment, I have been seeing a therapist again. And that's so important. It's so important to be able to have that space, I think. And to me, I see that I see sort of being in therapy as I kind of, I feel like it's kind of like going, having a GP, having a therapist, like everyone should just have a therapist that they can just go and talk to. It shouldn't be, it doesn't necessarily need to be a big thing. It should be seen as a positive thing rather than a sign of failure, you're saying. Exactly, exactly. I really value that time to just talk and just be with someone. The transition from doing what you were doing, which was amazingly challenging and difficult and stressful, to stopping how did you deal with that? I mean, that must have been, how did you stop opening emails? <laughs> What's, well, share insights with us, because most of us wouldn't, have, wouldn't be able not to do that. How did you manage it? It was hard. And to be honest, I still haven't opened a lot of the emails that I got. I haven't gone back through my inbox because that would just be uh, not worth it. It's hard. Switching off is hard. I think, you know, as we've discussed, it's, you know, when when you're in that zone of your whole world is your job, it is so hard. I mean, you've gone through this recently, haven't you, David, when you had to take time out for your knee surgery? I mean, did you stop opening emails? I'm totally putting you on the spot and calling you out. Absolutely not. You know, that's my problem. That's why I'm looking for guidance. Yeah, I mean, I think the way we expect things to work these days is to have a reply instantly. And it, it hasn't always been that way. And, and why does it need to be that way? There is some stuff that's important, but I know that if it's really important, someone will get in touch with me another way. You know, the people who are important know how to contact me another way. So just relying on that. And it's hard at first, but I think it quickly becomes more normal. So how do you, what's your... Uh attitude to emails currently in your new state of mind i'll just give you a tip before you answer that so one of one of the strategies i did have been working well i suppose the only the only way i've managed to somewhat curtail my inevitable link to imperial college was actually to make sure not to have 
the imperial emails on my phone because it jammed them up so much I couldn't have them anymore. And that worked out quite well. So then basically I would I would do my emails at the end of the day or something, you know. So I wasn't it, they weren't continually churning through. I found that actually was quite liberating. But, but what strategies do you use today? Do you time limit or do you? Yeah, I I don't have my emails on my phone and I don't check them when I'm outside of kind of that zone of being in kind of a working zone, whatever that time period is, that's going to be different for different people. But I think that's really, really important. And, you know, the, when I look back at the last four years, I, the thing that I, you know, I don't want to regret things, but the thing that I do, I don't want to use the word, I can't think of another word other than regret, but the thing that I regret is not that I had, you know, a burnout. It's all of the time that I missed spending time doing the things that are important. So doing the things, spending time with my husband, who was so incredibly supportive through all of this. But I feel like I let him down and that I wasn't with him as much as I should have been. And, you know, the whole, one of the whole reasons we moved to the UK was one for the jobs, but two, because we thought, you know, we can travel. Obviously COVID made things difficult, but part of me was almost grateful because then I was like, oh, well, I don't have to manage now having to think about having a life and work I just focus on work and I can see that a lot of people have struggled to get out of that mentality coming out of COVID to again be able to have that flexibility to go out and have a life some people are still caught in this kind of COVID like mindset and particularly from working from home I think that that also makes it easier to you know it, or harder to switch off if you don't build sometimes like I need physical barriers between me and my workspace and my relaxation space. No, COVID had you know, it was very strange because it, it did allow did allow people to spend a lot more. To, well, we know that people spend a lot more time in front of the computer. And it, at one level, you know, you seem to be more productive, but at another level, you were actually you were clearly losing out on a lot of important things, like like actually seeing people in the flesh and realizing you know that they're they're more than just a little image on the screen. As good as your resolution is, it's not like the real thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. And getting out and, and enjoying life. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of evidence now to support the four-day work week and that the you, know, you don't lose that much productivity. Maybe that's the direction we should be working in, working towards. Absolutely. I think uh, as you, I mean, I think it's, there is an enormous, the most difficult job, in the, well, the most difficult career path in the world is the, is the career path that you, that you took. I mean, I'm a, I'm a doctor, so, you know, well, for me, research was always what I wanted to do, but you know, I, I have a parallel track. So you know, there was all if I couldn't make it in research, I could always, you know, do interesting things in medicine. But full-time research is, is truly so challenging, especially as funding is getting more strict and more stringent, and opportunities are, are lessening because, well, for various reasons, you know, there are fewer and fewer positions. You know, it's an enormously difficult area to be in, and I, I have you know enormous. Respect for people like you, you know, who, who had, you know, had the drive and ambition to do it, but, but I don't know quite how we can best help them. I mean, do you have any sort of more general messages or to politicians or funders or what sort of advice would you give to society to to make it better for, for people who want to be you know, full time researchers? It's a hard one. I'll start by saying that I think one of the things that I've really struggled with is the idea that leaving academia is kind of seen as something like a failure so i've i've actually had someone say to me you know oh academia spat you out really well i hope you spat back at them 
<laughs> it's not that academia has broken me. I'm choosing to walk away. And that doesn't make me a failure. But there's this idea that if you, you know, you do a PhD, if you don't follow the academic route, then somehow that equates to failure. But it's not. It's just a different path. How can we make it easier? I guess it maybe it comes from outside, as you say, politicians and society, but also maybe from within, supporting each other and, you know, creating maybe, you know, creating an environment that's more conducive with balanced life that can come from within. I mean, I wish that there was more money for research that we could, it was easier to get funding, all of these things, you know, we need, we need better mental health treatments. And that's what brought us into this field in the first place. And, you know, there's so much research that desperately needs to be done. And I think, you know, all researchers really believe in their cause. And that's so great. I, I, I wish, I wish I had an answer of how to make it how to make it easier and more sustainable. But it is such a bottleneck. It's such a, you know, as much as I'm not a competitive person and, and I don't think many academics are naturally, but it makes it competitive by, you know, having us all fighting for the same grants. And then that makes things really difficult. Totally. No, absolutely. It does. Well, I mean, I suppose the good news is that the study you set up is we're recruiting at the last two participants at present. Um, so in the very not too distant future, you will be able to see the fruits of your of your efforts. And I think we can say, you know, it's like they're likely to be very interesting, whether whether we have a new therapy for anorexia is unclear at present, but there's no question the study needed doing and it will give us some fascinating and, and intriguing outputs and, and, and hopefully will build us you know, um, in, you know, a new direction of treatment, given that there aren't any properly functional treatments are anorexia at all at present, are there? So um, no doubt you'll be involved in uh, analysing and writing up the, the results, which you know, I hope you will anyway. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, it might not have ended up the way that I expected, but I came to Imperial, I came to London to set up that trial. I set up the trial, it got running, it like got it running, it's been running. So I, you know, it's a success, even after everything, everything I've through and and you know as I say it didn't end up the way I expected but I I think I can I can feel like it it was a success. Yes, well I'm, I have no doubt you're correct there. What are the future then? What what sort of do you have plans? Oh, that's the big question, isn't it? And I said earlier I hate uncertainty, but right now my world is very uncertain. I don't know what the future holds. Well, where would you like to go? I mean, you've talked to me before about maybe moving towards policy. You obviously did quite a lot of policy thought thinking when you were here with the working with drug science is that something that still distracts you yeah policy and education around mental health i'd like to do some more advocacy mm -hmm. for mental health support i have to say the eating disorder charities in the uk eat and others are, are brilliant brilliant organizations and i'd like to bring some of that knowledge to New Zealand and there are some great organizations in Australia too so I'd like to do some more advocacy and things like that I have this dream that one day I might write a book but we'll see how that goes so yeah I don't know I don't know what the future holds but what about what about helping us get uh, psychedelics approved in New Zealand <laughs> yeah I mean maybe maybe that's that's something we can discuss for sure well certainly you know we would drug science would be extremely keen to to help anyone who wants to move in that direction. We've, as you know, we've had some influence on 
actually quite a lot of New Zealand policy making in terms of smoking, cocaine, and crystal meth. So, you know, that would be a, a real win, would be to, to change the, 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 life, the, the schedule status of psilocybin in New Zealand. So, well. Yeah, okay. David, I think you've probably had more influence on our drug policy than you've had on the policy in the UK. Like, you've really changed things here. So, thanks for that. Yes. Well, I think that's a testimony to the fact that, you, you know, you, as a nation, you've got politicians that have considerably greater intellect than we do in our country. Yeah, so, and, you know, I don't quite know what's going to happen in your next election. I don't suppose anyone does, but uh, even, the you know, there's, I think, you know, it's just a sort of more open attitude. And, and it, actually, I have to say, it was really the effort you put into the, um, to the cannabis referendum and was fantastic and I, I'm still I still think there was some kind of dirty tricks going on with the the anti you know the the enormous funding that somehow got into the uh, keep it illegal campaign which didn't look didn't look to me very much like a, a homegrown effort frankly it looked like there was some influences from across the other side of the Pacific but well but you tried which is more than we've ever done <laughs> and it was so close it was so it close. was it was and it was good working with you on that yeah I really enjoyed it well, I want you to stay in touch. I hope you will. I'm sure you will. And uh, keep us uh, informed of what else we can do to help you in New Zealand. And, and at, uh, uh, we'll be talking, I'm sure, at meetings in the future about the, uh, the uh, psilocybin and anorexia study. So Absolutely. Uh, let me just put it on record. Great thanks to you for coming to us, sacrificing a lot of your life to set it up and suffering a lot. But it's so good to see you looking so well now. Um, long may it last. Thank you, David. And thank you for the opportunity to share today.